This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Essex police officer and founder of X-Job, Paul Maleri. So in this incredible conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from guns in the UK and the Redstone murders, to knife crime, the Tower of London, and everything in between. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Paul Maleri. Enjoy. Well, Paul, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for welcoming me the other day when I was in Stansted, and secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, thank you. And I've got to say, you look more refreshed now than you did when we met the other day. I think you were, it might be my um, charisma, but you did look like you needed a good sleep. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think people realize the value of first class or business, which I've never, ever been able to afford. But that transatlantic flight from the UK to, sorry, from the US to the UK is brutal because you, you know, you miss the time zone and you're in a, a plane seat. And for most of us that can only afford, you know, chicken class, that means that you get to recline about three degrees. That's it. So yeah, I'm not a big sleeper in a chair anyway. So yeah, I think, uh, I think I was kind of on fumes by the time we sat down together. It is, it is hard. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I'm in a place called Cressing, which um, is it's about 45 minutes from the centre of London. I'm 20 minutes from Stansted Airport. And it's got a small population. It's very rural in, in its aspect, but um, it's close enough to London to be you know, a good place to live. And it's safe. Oh, it is? So, so let me oh, ask yeah. you that. So, Because we'll get into this, obviously, there are some areas in London that are you know, incredibly safe. And there are some areas in London and the surrounding areas that are far from that. So what is it that makes your area safe from a policeman's perspective as far as the community dynamic? I, I think it is around the community. I think more people are looking out for each other here. Um, the rural aspect does make it relatively safe. There isn't a high population of policing here. Um, the, the austerity cuts around policing have made a marked impact on the way that the day-to-day day patrols take place. Um, so, but it's just generally safe. You, you, you don't have many stabbings, very few shootings, um, and compared to 45 minutes up the road, yeah, it's very safe. All right, well, let's start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, so I am... The oldest of two, my brother, uh, Glenn, he was a police officer as well. My father, he was a police officer. 
Um, prior to that, he was in the military police. I was born on the 29th of June, 1965, in a place called Bishop Storford, which is about 20 minutes up the road, near, near to Stansted Airport. And it's the home um, hometown of a man called Cecil Rhodes who went on to find Rhodesia. So again, it's a very small uh, town. It's right cl- it's close to the M11. That's where I was born, although my family actually came from a new town, which was called Harlow. And Harlow was built after the Second World War. And my mum was, I think, a, a family with the seventh family to move into the actual town. Really? So, what, so look, what does that look like? What's a brand new town well, in England? You know, how, how does that found? A guy called uh, Gibbard actually designed it, and he designed it in a way that there would be no roundabouts. Now, to the American audience, a roundabout is quite unusual. I think there's one in Tampa, and it gets mentioned every time on the news, the roundabout, the roundabout. Here, they're commonplace, but he designed it so it... it that it would have no traffic lights, sorry, and it would only have roundabouts. So it was it was that sort of town. Very narrow streets, very few people had cars because the the town was um, covered by a cycle track and everybody could get to their place of work. Very industrial, but they could get to their place of work on a pedal cycle. So it's quite, I mean, to put it into perspective, um, the Duke of Edinburgh, Queen Elizabeth II, they actually went to the town to meet the new families and all the kids got a book from the queen or from the, the royal household, which my mum still has actually. Um, my dad's family, they're Irish Catholic, big family. Um, my dad is one of seven and, and they moved there because they were going to get housing and they were going to get work. My grandfather on my mother's side, um, he was a plasterer and he took his, his, plasterers with him and they were able to work in the building industry and they were in the development of the of the town itself so yeah that's that's what it was all about now with the kind of increasing obesity epidemic that we have in my kind of layman perspective when you have towns that are predominantly pedestrianized and or you know bicycle friendly you tend to have a healthier population have you have you kind of had that sort of observation of there have you been Uh back I think, I, 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 you know, without being rude, I, I think that um, people have become inherently lazy, if I'm honest with you. The, the use of these these areas, cycle routes, uh, walking, what have you, I think people have um, gone back to getting in their cars. They've become very sedentary in their lifestyle. So it's all about watching the television, eating their sweets, drinking their beer in front of the TV. So it wouldn't be fair to say that they are super fit in that particular town. Gotcha. All right. Well, then you mentioned about your dad being in law enforcement. Obviously, your brother was kind of similar age. From his career, were there any kind of large career um, crimes or, or incidents that he was involved in? Um, to be honest with you, I, I couldn't really say. Yes, there were a number of cases that he was involved in, but my dad became disillusioned with the police service because the pay and conditions were so poor, he ended up moving out and going into... Um, private industry working for other people what you've got to imagine that in the mid to late 70s a milkman delivering pints of milk to the doorstep was earning more than a copper that's the same here in the fire service yeah and and that brought a number of different issues with it um you you know there, there were corruption was on the increase because people had to make ends meet and therefore they were taking chances around 
corruption, etc. Um, and the retention was really poor. You know, people left, albeit at that time you got police housing, which it went in 1994. But that, um, that was the main thing. But yeah, my dad dealt with it or worked on a number of different cases, um, murders, K O'Connor murder, which was in Colchester, the barn murder, which was in Braintree where the, uh, um, person by name patient was, was killed. Um, yeah. So he worked on a number of different cases. In fact, he had a stated case. And in this country, if, if a precedent is set um, within a court, then it, it becomes a stated case. And he had a stated case around a burglary, and it was about um, entry to a building. So I think it was R versus Collins. But, yeah, so he, he, he was involved in those types of things. But he got out. He actually, he went into the licensing trade. So he spent a long time in the military, and he served in Libya, Cyprus, Borneo, um, Germany. We lived in Germany when when I was a kid. So he spent a long time there. Then he joined the police service. He then left. And in, on, in April 1979, he was involved in a really serious road accident, which has meant that he's been disabled ever since, bless him. So that's been quite, you know, that was quite difficult, to be fair. I can imagine. Now, with a career in the military and then in law enforcement, as you're, you know, fully aware now, there's, there's definitely a mental health cost to service. I mean, that's one of many compounding elements that give overall mental health. But what we see in our profession definitely is a contributing factor. The shifts are contributing factors. Did you ever have any discussions with him? Was he ever able? Was he ever transparent with some of the things that he dealt with or his transition out? No, I, 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 to be honest with you, I think he comes from a generation where we didn't talk about that. That was, that was something that was always kept on the back burner. My, my grandfather's um, served in the Second World War. Uh, my, my dad's dad, he went through North Africa, went into Sicily, up through Italy, you know, and, and they saw some horrendous things, took part in some horrendous things as well. But it was something that was never discussed. And, and that's relevant to what we're doing today because we've never sat down with our grandparents. I never, big regret of mine, never sat down with my grandparents and said, what did you do during the war, granddad? You know, and, and because when we download people, which is what we're doing today, we are getting everything out there. But, but my dad comes from a generation where we don't, you don't discuss problems. You know, it's my father-in-law's even worse. I mean, he's, my father-in-law's 10 years older than my dad. He's 89. And, um, you know, real stiff upper lip, real, real British, um, and not, you know, if he ever listens to this, I apologize, but you know, he's very cold hearted. And I always, I vividly remember my dad being very, you know, he's very tactile with my boys fighting and giving them kisses and cuddles and my mum would be the same. And my father-in-law would shake their hands. Now I'm, I'm like my dad, you know, I love my, my, my kids. I love my grandchildren. I love my grandchildren more than my kids, if I'm honest with you. But, um, <laughs> But they know that, and you know my grandchildren cause me less trouble. But I, you know, I'd like to have that physical. You know, they're my they're my world, and um, like I say, we just come from different generations. Yeah, I I walk my son to the bus stop every day when when I'm not um, going to jujitsu or, or some conflict, and it's not that he needs to. He's a five foot eight, fifteen year old. 
but it's my time to walk with him and be present with him for a bit and I'm walking my dog at the same time so but then when you get almost to the bus stop I always give him a hug and a kiss on top of his head and you know there's that kind of push like oh dad don't embarrass me but to me it's the opposite it's like showing all the other kids in the bus stop this is okay for a dude to be affectionate towards his son well let me tell you I've got both my sons my eldest son is six foot five my youngest son is six foot four both of my kids, if they see me in the street, they'll walk up and kiss me. They've got no, because that's, that's you know, I love them. The, the love I've got is unrequited. Um, and w- you talk about walking. I play golf. My son's, my eldest son plays golf. My other son's in Australia. Um, but the four hours that we have playing golf, the good and the bad bits, we have the opportunity to converse and share our problems. You know, there's some problems I wouldn't want to share with him. I wouldn't want to burden him with. But equally, if there's issues, I mean, he, he works in tech and he's, you know, he's a, he's a bright lad. And I'm really proud of both my kids and, the, and their wives. Um, but that four hours is quality time, and which I wouldn't ordinarily get. And being in the police service, I didn't get because I was flat out all the time. I mean, my wife goes mad because I suppose I'm a workaholic. I can't leave things alone. Um, to fester. I'm also a magpie, and by that, I will go for the bright and shiny. I like the I like the thrill of doing something new, and then after a while, I'll get bored and I'll do something else. So, so I've got that. You know, it's a typical bloke thing, but um, that's how I am. That's that's my psyche. Beautiful. Well, when we're you know still on the school age, were you a sportsman? Were you an athlete back then? I'm not built like an athlete. I mean, I used to play <laughs> rugby. Um, I'm built for comfort, not speed. I could never run, and I and I couldn't I couldn't play football either. I had two left feet, but I was all right in fight with fighting. Um, so no, I wasn't an athlete per se. Um, I cycle, I cycled. Um, I've got all the gear, um, and I used to do a lot of cycling. But I, that's in later life. Um, but I played hockey. Um, I played field hockey, which the American audience will find difficult to understand because that's a girls' sport over there. But you know, when someone hits a, a hockey ball at you at 120 miles an hour, let me tell you, that hurts. That's not a girl's game. I played you know, for that, University of North London for the hockey team, so yeah. I, 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 you'll understand. And, and, and my wife and my sons, um, they all played hockey as well, my father-in-law. So it was just a natural thing to do, So, which I loved. And I liked the sociability side of it as well, but I played um, to a fairly high standard. Yeah. No, the thing I think people understand with hockey, like you said, the ball itself, but also, you know, you think about lacrosse in America, they they have all the pads and the helmets. Well, in hockey, you just run along with a stick. <laughs> you, yeah, can, yeah. you can, you know, you, you hit with you know, them wherever you can get away with hitting them. And obviously you can use the ball to hit them. So it's a pretty, pretty brutal sport, actually. Yeah, it is, it is brutal, but it's good. And it, you know, it builds, um, but it's quite refined as well. In a, Without being snobby, it attracts nice people. There's no, yeah, all right, the, the, the umpire might get a bit of a, a barracking occasionally on the side, from the sidelines, but it's not like our football or your soccer where um, some parent is unleashing on some unsuspecting volunteer who's given up their hour and a half to support someone else's children. That are five years in, old. <laughs> yeah. In, I remember dealing with a, um, a, a guy who was a, a young referee and a parent took umbrage at a decision that had been made. And the parent walked on and punched this young chap and fractured his jaw, you know, because he was so 
anxious about his son's team winning. And that's what I find really nice about the, the women's football because we've only just started to embrace women's football, soccer in this country, whereas the US, the paradox is that you've been doing that for years and there isn't a, str- there is a, a strongish men's game out there, but it's nowhere near, you know, it hasn't got the, 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 the drive that it's got here. And we've, we've just adopted it completely in this country, which is good. Um, but it's more genteel, but there's still an awful lot of skills there without the narcissistic aggravation that goes with the men's game. Or the rolling 17 times after a, a, oh. <laughs> a light tap to the foot. You think they've been shot with an MP5. I mean, they, they just go down so quickly. So... Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's interesting watching across the pond because I've got a lot of connections over there, a lot, a lot of family members. Um, there is a huge paradox. We're, we're almost identical, but we're so different as well. Yeah, well, I've, I just watched when I was home, when I came to, on that trip and we met, it was in the hotel in one of the, one of the stops. Um, the women's football, it was England and America, and America obviously have been world champions multiple times, I believe, and this is the first time I think the, the, the English team beat them. So that's exciting for this next World Cup coming up. Yeah, no, that, give, that gives us opportunity. And we went, the, the women won the uh, European Championships, absolutely fantastic. And they grabbed the nation. And, and with sporting success, it buoys a nation. If a nation is starting to struggle around, well, at the moment, you know, finances, political, one decent win by a sporting team, and in this country it would be football, cricket, rugby, all of a sudden there becomes a momentum and people start to feel good about themselves. They start to feel good about the things that they believe in. But conversely, when there's a losing streak, people get down. And, and what we do here, and I'm sure it's the same in the States, we'll put people on a pedestal just to bring them down again. We, it, it, there'll be a hero for six months and then all of a sudden, we're, it's like a it's like Jenga where you pull out the, the bottom brick and you're waiting for them to fall. That's exactly what we do here. And it's a great shame and it actually disincentivizes people. They don't want to raise their, their game and get to the top because they know what's coming next, which is a huge shame. Yeah, people ask me, "Oh, you, you're, you're English. You know, what's your what's your uh, football team?" And I tell them England. They're, they're always bemused. I'm like, because you know, I grew up watching, you know, people stabbing each other and pushing walls onto fans and all that stuff. So it really kind of just turned turned me on on quote unquote having a team. And I like playing football, but I just didn't like watching it that much, to be honest. But the national pride you get in the World Cup. And it's one of the true events where it's truly the world. Like they have the World Series in baseball. I think there's like two countries are actually in that, you know. So it really is this, you know, and then you have, you know, Ghana will come out of nowhere or these amazing, yeah. you know, small nations that make the, the cup. And I love it. And so, you know, every four years, I'll support the UK, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, whoever's in there, because to me, that's that's my country, all four of us together. I don't, it blows me away that people will fight over invisible lines and these two tiny rocks in the middle of the Atlantic as well but seeing the kind of three lines you know movement as we as we start to kind of get into the cup and get past a couple of rounds you can see you can see that unification oh wait a second I'm not it's not city versus you know united or it's not you know north versus south we're we're england or we're britain or we're the uk but it but the the the, the trouble with that is it becomes tribal so 
We had it last. I support West Ham. I'm, I've, I've been a West Ham fan all my life. And last week, Andelect came over from Belgium. And you know the, the Americans that listen to this will find this. This is tribalism at its worst. They, there were flares being um, set off in the stands. There were, honestly, it was absolutely unbelievable. That said, I've got some friends in Argentina at the moment, and they had police with riot shields standing on the corners so that when corners are being taken, it stops spears being thrown at the players. That's how bad that is there. But here, so, so you know, there's fights, there's 13 people arrested, there's four cops injured. You can't understand. It, it, it makes the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry look like Sesame Street. That, that, that's, that's the reality. You know, the, the, when I was a kid growing up, you'd have... Um, you'd have gangs of people that would travel across London in order to fight other gangs. So if Leeds United, were, who are a team from up north, if they were playing in London, um, West Ham would go and meet them at a, a convenient point for a fight. But there were no guns, no knives. You know, it was a, it was a fist fight, and I can't say nobody got hurt because that's not true. But it was a you know for somebody to get seriously hurt that was a rarity although that's that's getting worse again. But after COVID, interestingly enough, football violence in this country has increased significantly. It doesn't surprise me for a second. It really doesn't because you know people had all their autonomy stripped from them, and so they're going to cling back to that tribe again. But you got that pent up frustration that was those two years, and it was a real virus, and people actually died. But I think the way that it was managed in in the UK and Canada towards the end, New Zealand did a 180, you know, many, many states in, in the US. I mean, it was yep. a complete governmental overreach and it wasn't about health because as we discussed, I think the, a few days ago, you know, where was the improvement in PE programs? Where was better food in schools? Where was organic local farming being, you know, bolstered and supported? So I think, you know, most people just saw it as what it was. It was, it was a bait and switch. It was smoke and mirrors. They took something that was real and they weaponized it and didn't actually bring any solutions to it. They just used it to, to divide the nation. So then when we come out the other side, now you've got all these people in pigeonholes, you're pro-vax, anti-vax, pro-police, anti-police, whatever it is, and then you just set them, set them free again. So of course you're going to have problems. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, what I've noticed that there's a correlation between the, the pro and the anti and all that. And I've got some real, really, really good friends, and we disagree but we disagree in a, an adult way. You know, we'll still remain friends. We've got, you know, views around the Second Amendment, all those types of things. I don't live in America. That's got absolutely nothing to do with me, but I have a view. Um, but it has polarized friends. Politics in the world have polarized friends. It's pushed people way apart. And I'm worried that it's going to be to a point where we're not going to get back on with each other. And that's a that's a real real shame. I, I, I just and in this country, we've had a number of people that are anti-vax, but then they're pro-Russian, and there just seems a, a correlation, direct correlation between those two. You know, so there are some very very um, strange views at this moment in time. But as I say, some of it's got absolutely nothing to do with me. I just have a view. Yeah, but no, you're absolutely right because I feel like that's it. You've got two sides that are you know waving flags at the their nation saying 
you're, you're either with us or you're against us. And in that side, you know, if you're in this side, then you're Christian, you're, you know, anti-abortion, you're pro-gun. And it's like, no, it's not. That's not how life works. Everyone is individual and everyone has a reason based on their journey from birth to where we are for their yep. interpretation of all these different things. But these extremists had such a fucking loud voice that I think a lot yeah. of the people in the middle forgot that the middle is where the common sense is and both the left and the right extremes are the fucking lunatics that we need to kind of, you know, mute and let the normal people talk again. But, but they are extreme. And as I say, I've got some really dear friends who've got some very extreme views. And if it were, um, I mean, I, I'd get sick to death of hearing, and I've got lots of American friends I speak to on a regular basis. But you're either, you know, you're too liberal, you're a communist, you know, all that sort of stuff. I hate the term woke. I think that that's, uh, if I'm kind to somebody, does that mean I'm woke? Or if I have a, a view which is opposing to someone else, does that mean I'm, I'm woke? No, it doesn't. But equally, I'm not a gam I, I, I literally sit in the middle because I think I'm educated enough to hold an opinion without becoming personal. And And that's what I find really frustrating. But... The extremism that's sometimes shown in some quarters, like you say, if you if you go down the uh, the Christian anti-abortion, blah blah blah, pro-gun, all of a sudden you could actually say, well, you're so far to one side, it's almost a terrorist view. You can almost adopt. It's an indoctrination. We, you know, the 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 brainwashing that we accuse certain sections of society in the UK of having. Um, where people are groomed to commit terrorist acts, who are on the other side, completely the other side. Their extremism is almost parallel by the extremism extremism of the other side. So it's just, it's a total mess. So on this trip, I got to, to go hang out with my friend Dave, who's one of the armed policemen in London Transport Police. Yeah. Firstly, it was bizarre because you and I had spoken like a week prior Um and we discussed, you know, firearms in, in the UK. But then you go to this specific special unit in London and you're in their armory and there's AR-15s and shotguns and which are for the, the law enforcement, you know, personnel. And then you go out into the team room and the shift change and they're all tacked out. And it's like, God, as an Englishman, it's bizarre because I'm used to it in America. It's, I mean, yeah. I think most British people have their mind blown by that. But we were chatting a little bit and I asked him, you know, because we talked about 7-7. And I said, you know, what is what is the threat at the moment? You know, what are you? And and his thing was, everyone focuses on you know some of the religious extremists from from the Middle East, but he said, I think domestic terrorism is our biggest threat, and it's exactly what you're talking about. Whether you're talking about you know raiding a governmental building in D.C. if you're talking about England, or if you're a BLM extremist, or you're blowing up an abortion clinic, you know, whatever it is, that is yep. terrorism. And you take something that's in the middle, you go too far to the left or the right, you are venturing in that that territory now. Well, we've had that for the, I don't know if you if you follow the UK news, but we've had that here for the past two days, where there's a, it's called Just Stop, and it's about the oil taking oil from the ground and fossil fuels and things like that. And do you know what? I get some of it because actually over a very short space of time, we have systematically drained the resources from the, from the world. You know, we didn't have petrol cars 200 years ago, but all of a sudden we've taken out every piece of resource, all the gas, everything. And if you look at the way that Putin is holding 
the world to ransom around gas, we've got to look at alternates. We, because, you know, in the States, you've got all the gas. We haven't. We, we are now buying from the US. These two clowns, activists, have climbed the QE2 bridge. Now, just to put that into context for your viewers or listeners, um, it would be like climbing the Brooklyn Bridge but on steroids. These guys have gone so high and they've put people at risk because they've had to be brought there. I'd have left them there. I was going to say, left, I'd left them there I'd, too. It's like a cat in a tree. Exactly. At some point, they've got to come down. But what did we do? We stopped the traffic and a million cars a week cross that bridge. One million cars. Okay? So for two days, we have prevented X amount of hundreds of thousands of vehicle movements. That will destroy small businesses in this country. So what they're actually achieving is negated by their actions because they've upset so many people. People will just say, do you know what? We don't care about your cause. Yeah, you've highlighted it. Everyone's talking about it. But because we've just pussyfooted around, we should have just let the, the vehicles keep rolling, let them sit up on the up there until they're ready to come down. And do you know what? If they fall, they're the ones that went 180 foot up into the air. Not me. They went up there. They knew the risk that they were taking at the time. One of them designs bridges, believe it or not. What a clown. And yes, you know, if ripping the resources from the from the earth, then we've got to we've got to do something else. I get that, but you've got to be real about the way you protest. Well, I think wasn't it the same movement that was behind those two throwing the soup on that one? Was it Monet painting, I think it was? A Van Gogh. Van Gogh. It was the okay. sun, sunflowers, one of the most iconic paintings by Van Gogh. And they've got tomato soup, which they've thrown all over the we've got it here. The vegan activists walking into the supermarkets and tipping milk all over the floor. The argument is flawed. If 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 we and I eat meat, um, but I'm an animal lover, and I know that seems a bit of a contradiction in terms. But if we didn't have a program of meat production, then we wouldn't have cows in the field. We wouldn't have if people didn't shoot pheasants in this country. We wouldn't have pheasants running. You know, we don't hunt in the way that, in the same way that the, they do in the US. Um, but talking to the, uh, your colleagues um, who do hunt, um, it's very controlled. You know, you have to go into a lottery. You don't. You can't just go and shoot everything that moves. You've got to. You know, they're they're very controlled in the way that they do this. So, but it's about um, selection, and. Some people are just rebels for any cause, and that's the problem we have. And that's where your domestic extremism is built in. Well, I think with the you know, the oil issue, I mean, it, the the proactive element is visible as well. I mean, you look at London and all the smog that we especially used to have. I remember going to University of North London. I think I had, yeah, I think it was a window that would open because I was on the third floor, I think now. You know, and I remember just, the sill would be have this black layer and you know you blow your nose some days and it would be almost like black snot which yeah. is funny because it's like being in a fire now so yeah. when covid hit what happened 
all these cities cleared up, these canals opened up, dolphins started swimming upstream. And to me, that was one of the most devastating things is that Mother Nature was like, hey, you know, I can heal if you stop fucking me up. And yeah, then exactly. we just went and did the polar opposite where we covered everything in plastic and threw discarded masks and gloves everywhere. And so that should have been the real driver is like, look, we the technology is here now. We have the ability to create, you know, cars that are far more eco-friendly whether it's full electric whether it's hybrid you know depending on your you know distance that you have to commute that should have been the push not two fucking idiots gluing themselves to an art gallery i i agree and 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 the thing is that necessity and proportionality it's interesting because i've got a really dear friend who's a client actually i met through work and he's a former fbi really nice chap and if anyone was going to drive a six liter mustang i thought it was him and i said well you know what sort of car do you drive though he goes i drive a, a tesla you know, because that's that's how he, you know, and he's quite right. I mean, I get it that the, the charge in the batteries, there's got to be electricity. Electricity is generated in a number of different ways, including the burning of fossil fuels, blah, blah, blah. I get all of that. I understand it. But there's got to be, we've got to preserve something for our kids because if we don't, what happens? The, the sun goes out. You know, if we don't harness that energy and do the right thing, then, but, like you say, two people climbing. I had a friend, one who missed a flight and another one who missed a very important medical procedure around their cancer. Now, what those two did is unforgivable. The guy flying to, to Germany, he was able to get there. But to delay somebody's vital, life-saving medication, there can be no justification for that whatsoever. Yeah. No, I agree completely. I think the proactive conversation needs to be, I mean, even when we go back to the, the beginning of the conversation, pedestrianized towns, that immediately removes a lot of cars from the road. Now you have, yeah. you know, the one thing is mind blowing to me is America. I get the, the size of this country, but we were founded on the rail system. And yet yeah. most cities and towns have a horrible infrastructure when it comes to public transport you know so by pedestrianizing downtowns and then creating public transport you would also not only positively affect the environment but you would actually positively affect the mental and physical health crisis that we have as well but, but the issue you've got in the states is very few people walking anywhere i mean my, my parents had a house in hernando county um it was it was too far i suppose to walk to the local sh store um, but nobody ever did. It was too hot. I get that as well. So everyone jumps in their air-conditioned cars. They'll drive the two, three miles down the road to go and buy a pint of milk. So it, it's around accessibility. The other thing that, that we've gone to and you've, you've had for years is the regional shopping centers. It's the big malls. They've stripped out the hearts of the, of the cities and the, and the small towns here. And... They've laid it bare for charity shops, estate agents, all the things. People don't need to go into them. So the the heart of a town is dead. And it's a real shame. You know, some of the larger um, larger people that you've got out there and the, the Australian company that owns the, the big malls all over the world, they've actually destroyed the smaller town. Corporation has destroyed the small town, and I think that's a real shame. Well, I've had an observation of the the malls in America did did exactly that early on, and you know my 
not not myself i didn't grow up here but my wife for example she grew up as we saw we see in the films you know she was hanging out in the malls and going to the you know the yep. the smoothie place and you know the the clothes shop and the music shop and then you look at 2022 and some could argue the the delivery element of amazon again is contributing to exhausts and packaging and everything and i think there's ways we can address that but i think there's there's a good thing because Back then, it was pure consumerism in a lot of these malls. You go there and you rifle through racks of whatever and you walk out with whole bags full of stuff that you probably don't need and you go home. What I think is exciting to me, the potential, is that I think we've done a full, you know, a paradigm shift now where there's a yearning for a butcher, a baker, restaurants, barber shops, so that we can take back those town centers again. Because I think now we don't need to go to a mall to buy albums and clothes because we'll just go online and click and boom it's going to be to me here tomorrow so now what am i going to do with my time my money oh i'd actually like to go and get a cup of tea and go to that you know barbers and get a shave you know whatever it is but it's going to be that human interaction that i think is so needed right now yeah and and i i think you're absolutely right the 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 problem is investment because the um in the uk the towns are predominantly empty of shops, as I say, it's charity shops, uh, Turkish barbers, kebab shops. It's all the things that aren't relevant. And But the landlords are charging such extortionate rents. It has to be something that's got a high turnover in order to be worthwhile because your bespoke boutique um, stores, they don't make sufficient money. I mean, it's a really, really difficult in retail, it's a really difficult thing to get involved in. But, you know, you, you're ever hopeful. You hope that you, your kids um, do benefit in the long term from certain grandchildren. When my son lives in Australia, it's I think there's 450 people live there. But it's a tourist place. It's a place where if you want to go skydiving, it's beautiful. If you want to go snorkeling, you're right on the Great Barrier Reef. Um and they've got a small town, they've got a small Woolworths, um, but if you can't get it there, you can't get it anywhere because Amazon don't deliver. You have to 70 miles, which will take two hours, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, two hours to drive 70 miles. You can't imagine that. I mean, even at your speed limits, you could get up there quicker than that. Um, so, yeah, is different places in the world, and Amazon will never take over. You can get electrical, but you can't get anything else. Amazon will never take over in Australia. Yeah, but, but it's instant gratification. We're—I was talking to a guy earlier on. We, we've gone down. Society's gone down the instant gratifi- gratification route. So you know, so well. Look at what we're doing now. Okay, so Granddad, what did you do during the war? And we just sat there if, if we could be bothered to take notes. We don't do that. We didn't do that at that time. That's what we're doing now. We, we were asking those pointed questions. But if you go back, and we were talking about the Falklands War earlier on, that was uh, 40 years ago. But if you take that back 40 years, our grandfathers were getting ready to fight in the Second World War. I know, it's my grandfather, crazy. My grandfathers had already been deployed. Um, so, yeah, 40 years, and in 40 years' time, what's that going to look like? But everything is the here and now. In 1942, you'd have a war correspondent working with a cine camera, capturing people landing on beaches, taking 
German positions, whatever that may be. Now they can do it on their mobile phone and send it instantaneously to a million people. The problem with that is if there was ever an additional charge within the military and within the police of gross stupidity, that is the charge that most people will face because they're actually undermining themselves and undermining their colleagues. That's from a military and a police perspective. And and it can bring a whole world of hurt with court marshals, etc. Um, but the public wants that 24-7 MTV culture. And that's got... And, you know, don't hate me, but America has got a lot to blame for this because we didn't have 24-hour shopping here until 1994. Our stores had regulated times. They had to close on a Sunday. So what we've done, and a huge swathe of the US are very Christian, yet all the shops still open on a Sunday when people are supposed to be with their family and praying. So there's a hypocrisy there, um, and we've done the same, and people have only got so much money to spend. For me, I'm, I'm not particularly religious, um, but everyone should have a Sunday with their family. They should have Christmas Day off as well. But we've gone down that route where it's inconsequential. The fact that people, it's the most holy day of the year um, in our religion, in, in, in the Christian, Christian world, yet we still have shops opening. You know, and that's where there's something not right with the balance. Well, it's interesting. There's a, uh, a company here called Chick-fil-A who I'm not a huge fan of because they were kind of like the symbol of everything that was wrong during COVID because while people were told to stay in their homes and, you know, gyms were closed and beaches and parks, this yep. fucking business has people curled around its, you know, business three times around um, because they were they were still allowed to serve their shitty food. And you know, don't get me wrong, every so often I will, you know, buy that for my son as well. Um, so I'm not going to be a hypocrite. But one thing they do, which I admire, is their business model is they are, of course, faith-based originally, um, and they close on Sundays. And I can good. tell you right now that they probably earn more money by standing by that than yeah, people good. that would open that extra day. So, and it's the same with the you know these 24 hours. None of us are going to starve to death in in America if we don't have you know a meal for 12 hours. So to make someone work a night shift i mean i get it for you and i for police and fire paramedic we have to be there because people are going to have their worst day to get a cheeseburger or a corn dog at two in the morning is not essential so to 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 be open you know all the way through the night now you know you can have one or two here at a pharmacy and places that you can go but that 24-hour model they're not taking into a fact the damage that night shifts do on a human being so, so here, if, we, if I move it on to a different area from, from a policing perspective, when I joined the police in 1986, end of 86, beginning of 87, the policing model was police stations were open 24-7, 365 days a year. Okay? But the stores, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, they'd be open Monday to Friday, 9 till 5.30, um, or sorry, Monday to Saturday, 9 till 5.30, Sundays were always closed. Okay? The retail model has changed, and they're now more midnight, some places 2 o'clock in the morning, blah, blah, blah. Some are 24-7. The policing model has gone Monday to Friday, 9 till 5. They close police stations at 5 o'clock in the evening in the UK. So where is your sanctuary now as a, as a member of the public? Where is your sanctuary at 10 o'clock at night when you've had a beer and you've been chased down the road 
occupy some job. And I think that that's where the, that's where the, I come into conflict with what's going on in this country. Now, what's the reason behind that shift? Well, the senior management would say it's around austerity, around um, staffing levels, etc. And I get some of that, but um, you've always got someone's always got to do paperwork. There's always a copper that's got to do paperwork. Well, then put them in the front office and let them be there. So when someone comes in and says, "My daughter's missing from a nightclub," this has happened. I'm being chased by a gang of youths. Whatever it may be, there's someone there to take the sanctuary on but there's nothing they close the door and i don't know what it's like in the states but here if you try and contact a police station forget it it's a you know press one if you want to do this press two you, you get up to number seven by which time you don't you forgot what number one was and you've given up press nine if you're actively being murdered yeah yeah and that's <laughs> you know and i know that some forces have faced the a significant amount of criticism around the way that they do their their staffing model, and I mean, one they've, they've announced that every burglary, dwelling burglary, will be attended by a police officer. Well, good luck with that, you know, because because crime has moved um, globally. I could commit a crime from here um, online and have an impact on somebody in the states or anywhere in the world. Comes to that, but for me. Policing and crime start in the community. Doesn't matter. I, I could be phoning you up and running a, a, an online scam. I'm still living in the community. And the problem you have here is that we are losing community intelligence because we, we they have withdrawn the front line back into the police stations. There's no public face anymore. You know, you don't get cops out walking. Um, and what we've also done, we've turned all these lovely people into um, experts. Experts in law, oh no. We have a Crown Prosecution Service here, which is, I suppose, like the, the, the district attorney. And all of a sudden, these police officers become self-professed experts around, oh well, you know, the CPS will never run that. And they'll make the decision, we'll actually deal with it and ask the CPS, don't make up your mind because actually you're undermining what you're doing. So yeah, it's it's in a bit of a bit of a muddle at the moment. Um, British policing per se, the senior senior teams. There are some very very good people out there, um, but the there's a number of people that are purely Oxbridge. You know, they come from very good universities, um, and whilst they may be academically bright. They're not street smart. Then they haven't got the. It's no good telling somebody. What's the What's the phrase? You know, don't tell me what to do until you've done my job. Basically, I've done I've done the job. I know what it looks like. Um, when you've done it, come and tell me, and then we'll have a discussion about it. Because you've got all these um, strategic thinkers. Yeah, brilliant. You know, strategy is a massive thing, but it undermines the the ethos of the Pelian principles policing look we can't live in a glorious past we've got to move forward and I understand that technology's moved but we've turned our bobbies here into Robocop we've taken away we were always renowned for being the face of sensibility when it came to policing um, but we've 
we've removed. I mean, the the the, the cops in Florida. I don't know whether they still do, but they always wore a collar and tie. They'd have their body armor underneath their shirts. Always looked as smart as a new pin. Well, here we we they get black shirts that go under a, um, a tactical vest with a um, body armor with their taser on there with their their baton. No, there's no. There are people with guns. Yes, of course there are. You've already highlighted that. But everybody wants to look like John Wayne or RoboCop, I should say. So let's start at the beginning of your journey into law enforcement so we can kind of contrast this then. So you said 1986 is when you entered. Yeah. What, what was you know what was your initial journey? What was your kind of hiring process like? And then what okay. was the policing ethos in Essex when you joined that department? Okay, so um, Essex is a, is a county of 1.7 million people. It's got the longest shoreline in the UK. Okay, there are... Three major roads here, which all lead into London. There are seven uh, underground stations, and for that I mean metro for people that understand what I'm saying, but the seven metro which go into central London. Um, there are mainline train stations. It's a very, very cosmopolitan area, so that's the first thing. I began the process in October 86 um, when I took a formal written exam, and I had to have um, mathematics or arithmetic, basic stuff, um, English, and then do a, a PT test, do a physical, you know, 20 press-ups, 20 sit-ups, run a mile and a half in a certain time, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I did that in the October. Then on November the 11th, 86, I went through a formal interview process. I had um, an assistant chief constable, uh, chief superintendent, and a superintendent. And surprisingly, and I say that tongue in cheek, I got the job. You know, I was there were there were four candidates that went in on the day, and I got the job. You know, um, for which I was absolutely delighted. It was the best job. I always wanted to be a cop. The more my dad went went on about me being a cop, the less likely it was going to happen. The minute he stopped going on about it, I said. And when I applied, my dad said, "Well, I don't know what took you so long." You know, so it was. But it, I was twenty one. And for me, a regular girlfriend was someone that I'd been out with for more than two weeks. So it was, you know, it was a, a completely different um, way of life. But, you know, my family are very law-abiding. My dad, as I say, was a copper. My brother's three years younger than me. <clears throat> Excuse me. My brother's three years younger than me. And he joined after me. So, so picture this. I joined the police and on May the 10th, 1987, I go onto the streets of Braintree. Now, Braintree is a very small town. If I, the man who um, invented Kellogg's, the cereal, his family come from Braintree. Um, John Quincy Adams, his family come from Braintree, and George W. Bush's family come from six miles down the road. So, our links into the USA are quite significant. You've got Braintree, Massachusetts. So, when the founding fathers went in there, uh, a number of them came from this area. Um, so it's a small town, market town with um, industrial uh, units. If you couldn't get a, if you couldn't get a job anywhere, you go and work in the soup factory. That was that was the bottom line. But the policing style was um, community, but firm. It, you know, we, we didn't. We worked on the ethos that if you couldn't get into the local supermarket, or your mother couldn't get into the local supermarket because you've got a group of 
youths hanging about outside, guess what? The youths got moved and your mother could go shopping. It was a it was a firm but fair style of policing. It was engaging. It made we made sure that everybody got it. Were we good on diversity? No, of course we weren't good on diversity. We didn't understand what diversity was about at that time. It's only in recent years that we've um, understood the needs of individuals and 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 groups. And. You know that's a difficult conversation, and you could be you could offend people if you go if that conversation goes the wrong way. Um, but as I say, this is not central London. This is not Hackney. This is Braintree. Um, it's a short ride into town, into London. Um, so it's, you know it's it's a lovely place to live. Very very safe. Very quiet. Um, but we had two radio channels for the whole or three radio channels for the whole county so you had uh, number one channel number one was for north of the county and channel number two was for south of the county and in the middle you had channel number three and used to do all your vehicle checks it was called the police national computer and you'd call up on there and you'd be able to do your radio checks on there so you'd have a local control and the local control would direct the local officers. So if there was a fight in progress or criminal damage, that local control would deal with that in its entirety. If it was a, a more strategic issue, the number one, number two, would that would deal with it. And it would all go onto a computer system, although that computer system had only just come into place when I joined. And interesting enough, I went to um, the place in, in Tampa when I went out in '88. And they had computers in their cars. That's how far behind we were compared to what they had in the States. Um, so I served in Braintree for two years. And on March the 31st, 1989, I joined a plainclothes unit. It was a precursor to becoming a detective. And I went onto this, this unit. And interestingly, on the, on the first day, because it was my first day in plain clothes, it was there was almost an initiation, and there was a really fantastic guy called Vic Murphy who was uh, a detective on this team, and he'd set me up with um, basically, I was the youngest on the team. Uh, my job was to entrap a paedophile, you know, but it was all made up. He'd actually got the um, the collator, the local intelligence officer in a particular part of London clued up on it I was given all these jobs to phone these people yeah phone up ask about this person yeah 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 we know all about them they, they're into um, paedophilia you know child exploitation all that sort of stuff and this ruse went all day <laughs> until the point I was going to go out and meet this guy on a park bench when we had a robbery that came in and uh, a bank manager had been uh, his family had been abducted and he'd been coerced into going to a, into a bank and clearing out the vaults of all the money. And this team had worked previously with a with a large supermarket and done the same there. And so the ruse stopped, and, I, and that was my first introduction to major crime. I walked into the office. Um, I didn't know, we have a phrase here, ask from my elbow. You know, I'd never worked on a major crime. Um, there's a, there was a huge Rolodex, I suppose, index system, Cardex system on a on a carousel, and every action, every document, everything was written, handwritten 
and it was put into this carousel. The SIO on the job, senior investigating officer, was a man called Michael Ainsley, very well respected and absolute gent, brilliant, brilliant detective. And he calls me in and he says, oh, Mr. Maleri, I said, yes, sir. He said, I know your father. I said, yes, I know, I know you do. Mike, they'd been detectives together. Um, he said, I know your father. Yep. He said, can you cook? He said, I said, yeah, I can cook. So he said, right, tomorrow we've got 20 people on this team. I want you to cook a full breakfast for everybody. And there's the money. And that's what I did. I cooked everybody a, a, a full English breakfast the next day. Loads of tea, toast, the whole lot. And that was that was almost my initiation, my acceptance into working on major crime. Um, and then I went on to, I worked on a couple of murders, et cetera, et cetera. I then got selected to go on to the CID properly. And in the interim, I had to go back to uniform whilst I waited for my place to come up, which eventually came up. Um, I served in Chelmsford, which is the county town of Essex, albeit not the oldest, but it's, it's now declared a city, which I find a joke. But um, And I served there. I came back to Braintree, worked on the CID here, Criminal Investigation Department. And eventually I got um, selected for the, for the brand new major investigation team, which dealt with murders, abductions, rapes and extortions. And that was our stock in trade that's what we did uh, and we could we we would cover the whole county we'd work with three other teams and i worked on some very very high profile very interesting jobs um jobs that will remain with me for the rest of my life because they were they made national news they they were groundbreaking some of the things we did some of the tactics techniques around mobile phones it was it was an education to say the least I even, um, on one occasion, I dealt with the uh, the sexual assault of a of a child, and we didn't have an expert in in fibre transference in this country. Albeit, we had written the book. The UK had written the book that there's a lab in Lambeth. They wrote the book around fibre transference, and I ended up taking a single pubic hair to the FBI Academy in Washington DC or Quantico. Um, so yeah, I travelled. I, I, I worked out in Australia um, on an inquiry out there. Spent a few weeks out there, which was connected to a, 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 an assault here. So I was blessed. I had the best bits. You know, we, we we went to some great places. We did some great things, and we locked up some seriously seriously bad people. You know, we we don't have the chair in this country um, or any other form of, of corporal punishment in that way. But we, we have a life imprisonment, and some people that we dealt with, they got a, a whole life term, you know, that was um, – but that's that's the only thing that we could give the victims at the end, that little bit of closure, because the victims in this country, sadly, they would know that the suspects are likely to come out and be back in the community at the end of their life sentence. We just had a, a kind of um... – very disappointing decision and i'm i'm torn with corporal punishment because again you know i mean i think removing someone's freedom permanently 
is a solution, but at the same time, from a taxpayer's point of view, you're feeding and clothing and, you know, putting a roof over that person and, you know, yeah. what, what are they contributing to the tribe? And I mean, it's tribal in a positive way. Um, so the Parkland shooter, the one that shot, you know, all those kids in South Florida, I mean, he, he got off, um, and I got off, I got off the death penalty. And, uh, I saw, you know, some of the parents were just devastated by that. It's just another twist of the knife for them. Um, and what you, oh, what use is he in jail? Because actually, if, if we work on the burden of proof, sorry to cut across you there. No, but please. The burden, the burden of proof is beyond reasonable doubt. If it's beyond reasonable doubt that that person killed those children, then why would you want to keep him? Because he's subhuman. He's not a human being. Why would you want to keep him in custody? There is, there is no justification to keep him alive and that's where i find you know I, I there are some crimes that if they asked me to be the executioner i would have no qualms about that whatsoever you know um, crimes against children um homicides where police are involved where children are involved school shootings anything if you can prove beyond reasonable doubt that nobody else did that then they are no good to man the beast. I'm a big believer in, you know, a lot of these, you know, have have a backstory that lead them to them. But then there's some that are just so, so broken. I mean, Norway is a perfect example. Such a progressive yep. nation if you look around you yep. know, the globe. But that one shooting at the summer camp, I mean, you know, they have this really progressive uh, prison system where it's a community of houses and the prisoners live together and cook and clean and educate and, and go to work. And some of them are murderers, you know, crimes of passion and that kind of thing. But there is a rehabilitation element. But that guy that shot up the, the camp, he's in a fucking box. You know, he's he's locked away, locked away. And I think that's it. Is There's a lot of people I think that you can give a second chance. They were in a gang, they were whatever doesn't take away the horrors of what they did but you probably can turn them into a functioning member of society but there yes. are some like you said the crimes against children especially that you know damn well if they're let go i mean their biology is such that they think that's okay they're amoral towards it and they're they're they're, they're bad not mad and that's a phrase i use on a regular basis because if somebody says such and such and such and such um was psychi psychiatrically unsound that's one thing but if they say they are just bad people, and we know that, look, if a dog walks into the street and bites a dozen kids, that dog is taken straight to the vets and it's euthanized. So tell me what's the difference if somebody walks into a school and shoots a dozen kids? And, and he's caught, or she's caught, they are caught, with the gun in their hand. See, this is, the, this is the thing that I struggle to come to terms with the USA, okay? I love, the, I love the States. I think it's a fantastic place. I've got some great friends and family there. But the gun culture I find very, very unnerving because as a cop in this country, yes, we have what we call ARVs, okay? Um, they're armed response vehicles and they will do what your friend does and they'll go around and they'll respond to incidents. But the fact is, if they turn up as an incident and somebody is there and they are holding a gun, that gun is held illegally. There, are, there, are, there is nothing to say they cannot have a concealed permit. They cannot have a gun in the street. 
unless they are shooting um, pheasants and they're walking from with a shotgun and walking from one field to another, you know, they they just cannot do it. So the the emergency services are in the states are up against it immediately because as soon as they turn up, how do you identify the good person and the bad person? Because if everybody is wearing the same pair of shoes and the same pair of Levi jeans and carrying the same gun, how do you differentiate between the two? Because you've got to try and get an account and you're trying to get an account off of irrational people, probably on both sides because they're both pissed that they've got guns and they're pointing at each other. And it makes it so risky and so difficult for the law enforcement. But I get it. You know, America's your country, the UK's ours, and I suppose, you know, I use the phrase, if, if the Americans have paid their taxes and not thrown the tea in the harbour, they'd have been part of this country and the Tower of London would have been open to them as well. But they didn't, and we're two different, you know, 1776, we're two different, we've got a com- commonality, but we're poles apart. It's such a interesting subject to discuss, Um being English, being, you know, obviously American now as well. I mean, I kind of feel like James Bond with two passports, even though the Americans don't recognize my British one, but the British recognize my American one. So it's another, <laughs> like you said, <laughs> pole, poles apart. Um, but, you know, when I, when I grew up, I had guns. I grew up on a farm. We had shotguns and I went up to Scotland and, you know, I, I never actually fired it, but my uncle would, would hunt up in Scotland, you know, so there were guns again. So it wasn't like it was, you know, a void of firearms. It was just where they were appropriate. And I remember never, never seeing a gun ever until ironically it was in Highgate, not exactly known as a rough part of North London by any means. And yep. some bloke was mouthing off in a, in a pub and, you know, you could see a pistol tucked in his, his waistband. And that, you know, kind of freaked me out because I'd never ever seen it. Then I moved to America and for many, many years, I'm not like, you know, protesting firearms, but I, I'm not getting one myself, you know. And then I have back to school shootings, a moment where I'm bringing my son back to his junior school, his elementary school, um, the same type of school that Sandy Hook was. And the door closes behind me and they says, sorry, Mr. Gearing, you're going to have to come into this office. We've got a code red and the sirens start going off and the teachers, you know, Everyone was excellent. They corralled these kids. They'd done um, drills already, but this is the first time they thought this was the real deal. So I'm locked away in this, you know, basically this supply closet with, I think there was one other parent that happened to be there and then a couple of teachers that were at the front. And I'm realizing, okay, they have no idea what's going on outside. There's no communication with anyone else inside. You know, as far as the vulnerability of the building, being a firefighter, I know it's easily penetrated. And so I'm literally in this office looking at the paper guillotine going, well, I'm going to have to snap that damn blade off and, you know, hope for the best, you know, one chance of maybe, you know, helping because my son's right next to me. Um, and I remember him saying, I'm so glad that you're, you're here with you. You're here with me, daddy, at least as a paramedic. And it broke my heart because that's yep. none of the other kids have their moms or dads with them. Yep. And so that reframed it a little bit. I'd done a firearms training course with Tim Kennedy, a Green Beret, but I ended up buying one because it the tool in the toolbox in 2022 in america at the moment as you said every man and his dog has a gun and sadly a lot of people have guns and then they don't take care of their fucking strength and conditioning they don't do any martial arts they don't do anything to to you know down regulate a situation they just buy a gun or 10 guns or 20 guns 
And so it is. It's this really hard thing to navigate because there's no question. You can't just tell the good guys to hand in their guns today because it would be a disaster. But as I point out, in the 40s, the UK was riddled with firearms and tanks and you name it. We were were in a war. And if that country was able to get from there to minimizing the amount of firearms, you can join a gun club and have a gun. You can go hunting and have a gun. But, you know, there's not that need to walk around, you know, strapped the whole time. That's the conversation we need to have. How can we start to downregulate it so the good guys and the bad guys aren't immediately reaching for firearms the moment they have a disagreement? Because you can't de-escalate. It's difficult to de-escalate something like that. So, so you're quite right. There are clubs, but you can't have a handgun. You can't have a, you cannot have a magnum. Even even at a shooting club, as far as I'm aware, I don't think that's changed. You can have a hunting rifle, and at Bisley they have have rifle um, competitions. But this all came about. We had a, a shooting famous in the UK in Dunblane. Now Dunblane is a a small town in Scotland. Um, Andy Murray, the tennis player, was in the school at the time that the shootings took place. He really, was in, he was in another classroom, um, and. This person, I don't even know their name, and if I did, I wouldn't give them the, the ability, you know, I wouldn't air their name, went and slaughtered the children and the teachers in a particular class. And the government of the day said, you know what, enough's enough, because we'd had Hungerford, um, where a guy went around the town shooting people, and they said, enough's enough. And that was the end of firearms as we knew it in this country. I've got shotguns here. I've got shotguns, you know, I'd have to blow the dust off them. But I've got I've got guns here. But they're not Yeah, of course they can kill someone, but then so can the the sharp sharpened um carving knife that I've got in the drawer that I use for my Sunday roast. I, I can kill somebody with that. In fact, that's more accessible than my shotgun. But we've we've reduced the risk and that, that's what this is about. It's about mitigation of risk. And as a as law enforcement firefighter, it's about mitigating that risk. And if by removing the object, I get it. You know what? In 1776, when the right to bear arms was brought about, yeah, everyone was fighting each other, And but I don't get it in the modern day. I certainly don't get automatic weapons, tank busters. You know, I, I don't get any of that um, because that's extreme in my view in my humble opinion. Um, I believe that every Englishman's home is his castle and you should be able to defend that. But there are ways and means of defending it. Because I, I, I like to think that if I was ever the victim of a burglary, the chances that the criminal coming here, you watch what will happen now, and having <laughs> them having a gun is so, so minimal that it doesn't, doesn't warrant me having a a firearm ready accessible to shoot someone who comes into my house. Now Louisiana, and I've got friends who live live in Louisiana. They've got a terrible problem with house break-ins. They've got a terrible problem with murders in in New Orleans. Um, I get the fact that they've got to defend themselves, but unless you eradicate the whole the whole piece, I could walk into pubs in London now. And I was an undercover manager, so you know I'd have people that go and buy drugs and guns and things like that. There are pubs that you could go in and put an order in, and they'll get you a gun. But the but the fact is that I don't mean this horribly, but there aren't many innocent people 
that are getting shot by these with these guns. You know, the, these these murders are taking place within the gangs, within the communities. They're not breaking into people's homes and shooting somebody because they want to steal their Rolex. And that's the massive difference. The only time I remember guns, and it's ironic, I actually was going home um, after we met. So the following day, I drove down to the West Country and I, there must have been some sort of traffic on the M4 because it took me on a lot of the surface roads. And I went through Hungerford. And it broke my heart because I'm like, the only reason I know this name is because there was a mass shooting here. Yeah. So when I think normally of guns growing up, you know, like Indelible Evidence, I think was a show that was on years ago, was either someone that didn't want to be married to their significant other anymore <laughs> and they rigged some booby trap or it was usually stately homes getting robbed by, you know, gangs. And there would be, yeah. even then, it was a sawn-off double-barrel shotgun normally. It wasn't an yeah. AR-15 or, you know, Kalashnikov or something like that. So, you know, what, you know, what is, I mean, you kind of touched on it. What is the, 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 uh, the percentage of, of crimes where, you know, these illegal guns are actually used, as you said, on, on, aside from, from, you know, criminal on criminal? I couldn't tell you the, um, the percentage. What I can tell you that if there is a shooting and a child was shot up in, in Liverpool recently, um, and they've arrested somebody. But if there is a shooting and somebody dies, that still makes the national news. That's how rare it is. It still makes the national news because a firearm as a weapon of choice to kill somebody in this country is very, very, very rare. It's still a safe country to live, except in what you said about certain parts of London, gang culture, um, if I don't go there, I'm not going to be affected. Now, speaking of gangs, oh, I'm sorry, carry on, please. Uh, but that's the reality. Yeah, go on, mate. So the um, Retterdon murders, I remember that. So I must have still been in the UK. Um, that, again, national news, extremely shocking. Now, ironically, I've seen that kind of scene over and over again since I've been a firefighter in America. Yeah. But, you know, a, a, a Land Rover is discovered and, you know, peppered with... with um, you know, firearm, you know, bullet holes and, and corpses inside. And that made national, national news. Now, talk to me about, you know, your involvement in that case and then, you know, it the background. Still, make, still makes national news. So the, the background is that there were three people called Tate, Tucker and Rolf. And they were um, hoodlums. They were local hoodlums. You know, they were involved in all sorts of um, things, supply control drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they weren't particularly nice people, but they'd messed with the wrong people. And a man by the name of um, Mick Steele and Jack Wombs, two men, they were driven there, um, driven to an area, rural Essex, um, by a guy called Darren Nichols, who was a, became a supergrass. He, was a, a, he became a police informant. And these to execute the three hoodlums, subsequently get arrested and um, locked up. So basically five people are taken out, six including Nichols, but five people taken out of the equation. Tate, Tucker and Rolf are dead. Um, Wombs and still get convicted, get locked up. Darren Nichols gets convicted for a lesser offence, also gets locked up, and he's on a witness protection scheme and what have you. I mean, the backdrop of this is that it's um, 
ecstasy was massive at the time. We had the death of a, a, a girl called Leah Betts. Basildon, which is a, a central Essex town, south to central Essex town, um, was rife. And these guys would run the doors um, and they would extort from local businesses and, and so on and so forth. And they overstepped the mark and, and therefore um, Worms and Steel went and um, killed them. It's interesting because that still rankles on. You know, there's still a, a lot of almost... Um, I don't know how to put it. It's a, it's a bit of reverence wrapped up because everyone knows the Essex boys. It's 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 that um, it, it's spoken on it, it of in in local culture. You know, it, it's um, I don't know how to how to, how to describe it, but it's, it's still got a huge significance here. My involvement, um, unbeknownst to me, uh, Darren Nichols was was being run as an informant by my sergeant and one of my colleagues um it was alleged that they were corrupt they were found not guilty at any criminal hearings at, at crown court um but it still leaves you know 30 years nearly down the line it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth because we we as a hard-working detectives were exposed unnecessarily by some poor practice by these officers and when you compromise yourself, compromise yourself is one thing, but if that compromise affects your colleagues, then that is unforgivable. What was the compromise that was made? Oh, it was all, all sorts of things. You know, um, there was alleged drug dealing taking place between police officers, yet the court couldn't come to um, an agreement around who was responsible for what. Um, there was poor practice. Look, what you've you got to remember, there was, there's a great BBC television series called Life on Mars, and if anybody gets the opportunity to watch it in the States, it's going to be on um, BBC or something. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. But that's the culture that I joined. Remember I said about uh, Mike Ainsley telling me to go and get um, – the breakfast stuff and what have you. Well, on a Friday, we'd all have a whip round. We'd go and get a bottle of whiskey, some cigars, and some of the guys that play cards, they play cards. You know, it was, it was a completely different culture. Was it right? No, it wasn't right. But actually, what it did, it bonded the team. Everybody was part of the team. Now, you could say, and I've, I've, I've spoken at length to uh, American colleagues about this, it's about trust. Because if you're all doing it, it's almost like, it's almost like that blood brother. You know, you, you've you've cut your palm and you're exchanging blood, and that's and it's that trust. Because you know you shouldn't be doing it, but we did it anyway. Um, that culture was wrong, um, but it did build camaraderie. I mean, I, I had chief inspectors say I'd, I'd take a warrant into, and they say, "Oh, do you want a glass of scotch?" You know, so you'd have a whiskey with the, with the boss. That's how it, that's how it was. You know, rightfully or wrongfully, that's how it was. Um, so, but yeah, they, they compromised us. Um, they did some stupid, stupid things, never convicted at court. Um, but the, the Essex boys, the rest of the murders had a massive impact in the way that we dealt with informants, you know, informants were people that would give you information. It was as simple as that. And everybody had informants. In fact, what you'd, you'd have to claim if you went and bought a drink in a pub to meet an informant you would claim that money back. You were encouraged to do it. 
But the aftermath of the resident killings was such that informants went out the window. I, I dread to think it's probably Essex Police, my my county, they've probably got 20 or 30 registered informants in the whole county out of 1.7 million. That's nothing. We would, we would, we had informants living next to each other, all grassing each other up. You know, that, that's how it was. But you took the information from where you could get it. Um, and you got the best bits and the bad bits. And, but yeah, it was, it was a real shame. And it, it's, um, it could have ended a, a number of people's careers. Some people went on to be superintendents. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite, it was quite horrendous at the time. But it was fun as well. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't all bad. It was, there were, I'll tell you a story. So, so around that time, and this has got nothing to do with Red Murders, there was a, we had an armed robbery. Ironically, we're talking about guns. This guy walks into a, a shop. He's been convicted since years ago. Goes into a post office, sawn off shotgun, blows a hole in the roof, steals the money. Now, this guy looks like um, grew out of... Um, out of the uh, I mean, despicable me. <laughs> So, so as soon as someone described him and, and the minions or despicable me was wasn't even out then, we knew who it was straight away. So we go around there, we arrest him. He gets brought into custody. Now I was a young, naive detective, and he was a young fella as well. And we got on. We had a rapport. We got on relatively well. And we interview him. We finally find out through through the interview that he's hidden the money on a railway siding. So my boss says, right, go with him. I said, what do you mean go with him? He said, go with him. Now this guy's a bodybuilder. He's huge. Okay. So one of my colleagues, Rob Vickers, lovely fella, um, puts me in the car. I'm handcuffed to this chap. And he takes me to this derelict railway siding where we recover. This could, this fella could have broke me in two. We're handcuffed together. And he goes, he says, oh, it's under that brick there. And we recover all of the money that this, this kid stole in this arm robbery. And that was fun. You got a, a massive, massive buzz out of things like that. So the work hard, play hard culture was fantastic at the time. Yes, it was inappropriate. But the, the Retterton killings and the aftermath of that put a, a huge um, kibosh on, onto what was taking place. Now, with the, the criminal side... Um with 30 years in, in law enforcement, were there any common denominators that you saw in the background of a lot of these, you know, people that you put away that kind of, like I said, were common denominators, whether it was household structure, whether it was, you know, abuse or, or was it completely diverse? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, some of it's generational. So the, the families could have been career criminals and they've passed their skills on, you know, two, three, four generations. Never worked. Um, I vividly remember one family where I dealt with the, the mother, I dealt with the son, and the son has a child. And when I go around to deal with, with the son again for burglary um, in Braintree, there's a child sitting there. The child's an adult now. And, and in fact, the child is in loads of trouble at the moment, makes the local press. Um, sitting there and there's a child's push along toy and they've mocked a, um, a hot wiring. Cause what, you know, years ago you'd be able to hot wire a car, but they, they've done this for this kid's toy. That's no, come on. Um, social deprivation, massive driving factor. Um, drugs, 
yeah, you know, drugs is a huge piece. I mean, um, but it's about social conditioning as well. I think sometimes it's about breaking the cycle and some people aren't able to break the cycle. Um, I met, I met over the years a number of really nice criminals. Now that sounds stupid, but actually, um, they had a heart in a funny sort of way. Once they'd been, once they'd got onto heroin, their scruples and morals had gone. They couldn't control what they did because of their addiction. But there was, there was a, a guy, he's dead now, Kevin Hugh McLeod. And we go and we raid his house and we find um, a load of stuff there and his mum's there. But the, the, she's got two sets of kittens. So my kids were really young at the time. And I said, what are you going to do then? She goes, oh, I don't know. I'm going to fucking drown them. So I said, well, I'll have those two. So she said, you what? I said, yeah, I'm going to have those two there. So not only have I walked away with a load of exhibits, but I've walked away with two kittens, which I then took home to my kids. Do you name you know, them exhibit A and exhibit B? Well, <laughs> interesting. When I, I had to go back there again. She goes, oh, Mr. Leary, have you still got those fucking cats? So I said, yeah, I have. And he, um, Kevin had a, a, a friend called Robert Watkins who's also dead now through um, injecting, uh, overdosing. And she said, do you still got those cats? I said, yeah, I've still got them. She goes, oh. I said, yeah, I called them Kevin and Bobby after those two clowns. She said, I hadn't. But <laughs> she laughed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I met some, and I met some honourable thieves. I met some honourable murderers, dare I say it. You know, people that have been the victims of circumstances who, who'd had enough of domestic abuse and they'd taken the law into their own hands because at that time, and thank God it's changed, the police service didn't protect the victims. When I attended a, a, a domestic violence situation, the first one I went to was in Rifle Hill, Braintree. The, the guy's probably dead now. Um, I didn't know what stresses and strains a, a, a relationship brought. You know, the, a mortgage. Um, well, look, what do, adults, what do adults argue about? I'll ask you a question. Mostly money. Right. Sex, money, and kids. Yeah, that's they're the three things. Well, I knew what sex was about. I knew what money was about, but it wasn't a massive issue because I didn't have a mortgage, and I certainly didn't have any kids. So for me, at the age of 21, to go around and tell a grown person who's in his late 40s what to do, that was a really difficult and challenging role to play but but we did it but you know so you get to you got to meet these really really nice people who were victims of circumstances you know shoplifters that would steal because they all they wanted to do was feed their family you know the fact that some of them were stealing to feed their habit that was a different story and a different social issue um there's a massive drive in this country to decriminalise drugs. I don't support it, if I'm perfectly honest with you. And I have some very healthy debates with people around this because you could decriminalise it, but the fact is there will be a cartel somewhere that will undermine that decriminalisation. And knowing the governments, as we do, if we decriminalise it, we will put taxes on it. Therefore, we will make it unattainable and then all of a sudden, the drug cartels will be selling it cheaper. So we're still going to put money into their pockets. You could say, right, okay, well, we'll, we'll give them a prescription and they can um, 
go and get it from their local chemist and use it. But history's shown us that even that doesn't work because they lose their prescriptions, they sell the drugs that they get prescribed to them, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's a very, very difficult and a very emotive subject here because if you look at the percentage of people in jail in the UK for taking drugs, there's a disproportionate number. But it's not only about the drugs, it's about the additional crimes that are committed in order to get those drugs, breaking into people's cars. I mean, the days have gone where you'll take a, a cassette player or a CD player out of a car because cars don't have them anymore, do they? So, but if you, you know, you've left your purse, your wallet in the car or whatever and it gets busted into, that causes a load of problems, house burglaries. There is still a funding issue when it comes to drugs. So, you know, it's a, it, like I say, it's a very emotive subject and I know that not everybody agrees, which is fine. That's why we're adults and that's why we're able to debate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this before because I'm very pro decriminalization, but my lens is a little differently. It's not about, well, how are we going to supply people with drugs after this? It's you take an addict and you stop funneling them into a, um, a legal system. Don't get me wrong. If they bash an old lady on the head and steal a, her handbag, then that's a crime. That's nothing to do with it, even if they're an addict. But if it's stopped with a user's amount of substance X, and then you start funneling people through the mental health counseling, addiction counseling, job creation like Portugal yep. does, and you address the addicts that truly want to overcome their addiction, now you're left with a much smaller group to deal with, as, you, as you're saying. So for me, it's not about, um, yeah, of course, you're going to have safe injection sites for those, those group that just simply cannot kick the habit. Um, but for, I think a majority, if they're not going to get a criminal record, putting their hand up and saying, Hey, I'm an addict and they get the help that they need without the barrier of entry of, of financial element, because I think the NHS is, is an amazing system when fully funded. I think we could really massively reduce the amount of addicts and therefore, as you said, the crime that is attached to addiction. Yeah. And, and, and you, you, yeah, you're absolutely right. But like I say, it's very difficult because we do give. In this country, there's there's still a, an awful lot of support. You know, there's a lot of very, very good organisations. I don't know what it's like in the States, but there's a lot of good, the Westminster Drug Project, they work in different towns, they work with different addicts, and they do a really, really good job around um, around those issues. I mean, Harlow was particularly bad. I, I ran a, um, an undercover team, um, and yeah, we were we were busting people all over the place, you know, selling crack. And we don't have the um, methamphet methamphetamines that you have, um, but, you know, we have crack and heroin and uh, it is particularly bad. And, and what happens is that the Westminster Drug Project will work in the custody suite and they'll do the intervention in order to give the support. So there is support there, um, but complete decriminalization for me, it wouldn't work in my in my world, but as I say, everyone's entitled to a view. Absolutely, and this is like you said, two grown ups having a conversation, and the middle ground, you know, the the thing where where we do overlap is probably the the starting point. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when I think of crime in the UK, something that seems to have you know at least got more visibility um, is the knife crime. So, with the the absence of firearms, which I think again really does eliminate a lot of crimes of passion it's it's you can't do a drive-by stabbing you know what i mean you can't no. you know have a road rage incident with with a weapon like that unless you're physically willing to murder someone with your bare hands or a tool in your hand so it does 
change the playing field a little bit. But, yeah. you know, it seems like we're seeing a lot. Um, what, yeah, that's my, my perspective through the media from across the Atlantic. Talk to me about your view on that, that, um, subject in the UK through the last 20, 30 years. So knife crime, I mean, when I was a kid, my brother and I, um, we'd, we'd have knives, we'd have Bowie knives, we'd have lock knives, never had flick knives, have been outlawed for years. Um, butterfly knives, banned as well. But it's your, you have a TJ Maxx, thing. we have TK Maxx. Um, they're the sorts of weapons that are used now. You know, you're carving knives and, and what have you. The problem you've got, and... I know this is controversial and I've got a lot of friends who will hate me for this, but the stop and search policy, in particular with the um, the city police, police services, Metropolitan Police, Great Manchester Police, is flawed because they're frightened to undertake the searches. Now, if you look at the majority of, of the murders that are taking place in, in central London, um, where knife crime is, is prevalent, it, it's black kids killing black kids lovely people killing lovely people you know that's that's the bottom line and it seems to be that the police are scared to go and put their hands in these kids pockets for fear of being called racist um when in fact what they're trying to do if if my son was stopped all the time yes i'd be pissed of course i would because it becomes unfair unjust unfair but the problem you've got the areas in which are being targeted is where the majority of knife crimes are taking place. So if my son was um, stopped and it meant that if he got caught with a knife, he wasn't going to kill somebody, or it was protecting him from being stabbed, then I would welcome that with open arms. But I also get the other perspective where, and, and you know, I've got, I've got friends of Jamaican, what have you, and, and um, we have, a, have this discussion. I also get, the fact that it must be really upsetting to get continually stopped when you're getting stopped because of the color of your skin. But the problem is it's in those particular areas where um, the Jamaican population is larger and where, where black kids are getting killed. That's where the stop checks need to take place. And I don't think the police are being afforded the appropriate protection. Well, my first apartment was Hialeah, which is in the Miami area. And I think the the census showed it was 96% Cuban. So that's always been one of my observations. Firstly, this whole stopping because of skin color. If you've ever been to America, especially where I've lived, California and Florida, the tints are so dark, you have no idea who's in that car. So that kind of you know comment is actually bullshit because it could be an 80-year-old Caucasian woman or you know 18-year-old Latino man. Who knows? But yeah. you also have, you have to admit the, the element that if you, you know, if you're serving downtown Anaheim in California, where I used to work, or Hialeah, you're going to be pulling over Hispanic people over and over and over again, because that's who fucking lives there, you know? So that's yeah. the other problem with this conversation. I agree with you completely. I, it breaks my heart when I see some of these videos of these, you know, these stabbings, because you're like, all right, well, that kid, you know, just got out of school. And now he's going to prison for the rest of his life. That kid just got out of school and now he's dead. You yeah. know, so if a simple stop and search and your ego gets a bit butthurt, stops you having to bury your child, I'm totally for that. And I grew up in a, you know, in a, a countryside in England. I got pulled over and stopped by the police all the time because that's what police do. 
they harass people that they think potentially might be troublemaker. We didn't do a damn thing other than it was like jackass. You know, we drag one of us was sitting in a, in a shopping trolley and we'd tow them in the car. And so we were dangerous to ourselves and that was it. But we never did anything criminal. We weren't, you know, nothing. We didn't, didn't deal drugs. We didn't beat people up. Zero. And we got pulled over and stopped all the time because that is what police do. And like you said, because the opportunity is if you happen to, to do that and you stop the guy that just shot up Hungerford or Parkland, then everyone's going to applaud you. But if it wasn't and they cry racism, then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're you lauded know, as a racist. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a nothingist. I really am a nothingist. I've got my views. I've got my opinions. Um, I'm not a fan of Tottenham Hotspur. That's a different story. But, <laughs> but, but you know, it's uh, it, and and I've got I've got some lovely friends, and we have this conversation. As one lady, Mary, her, her son gets stopped all the time, and you know, bloody please, blah blah blah. And I get, I do get it, but the complaint about being stopped by the police has got to be better than having the police knock on your door to say, "I'm really sorry." You've got to come to the mortuary and identify your son. Or your son's in custody. We need to search his room. Why is he in custody? Well, I can't tell you, but somebody's been killed. You know, that's it's got to be better. There are lovely kids in this country who are losing their lives, and there are lovely kids in this country that are losing their livelihoods and their liberty. And that needs to be addressed. We, we can't keep pussyfooting around it. The problem is that the police have become politicised. We were never a political organisation, but there are lots of groups that are trying to politicise the police and it's undermining the ethos of what they do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like I said, I went from a farm where the only blood I saw was my dad was a vet, so it was, you know, operating on horses and dogs and cats to working in some of America's, you know, poorest uh, most dangerous neighborhoods really from from Hialeah to to areas in Anaheim and areas in Orlando area which is funny because people think of Disney and they think it's super safe which is no absolutely not <laughs> but you know you, you, I have physically pulled the sheet over the 15 year old kid in in the park that was shot because he was defending you know the apartment complex that he lived in so when you see the backstories and as you said these families that these kids grow up in and these these you know the the situation that they're in their mentor becomes a gangbanger you know or the, the drug dealer and they're doomed so this proactive preventative policing is what we need to try and shift the 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 alley that these think these kids think they have to go down to, to well yeah i could be a drug dealer but this you know military member just told me about the army and this firefighter just told me i could be a, a firefighter one day and this teacher and this doctor and you know now all of a sudden you're giving these kids opportunities and it's not you know obviously it's it's harder than just showing up one day and saying hey you could be a fireman but being that mentor putting that community policing backing and not just the police but everyone in the community yep and raising all our kids up so that we're not watching children murder each other over this facade of of turf or or hood which is absolute insanity well we, we have it here with the post postcode stuff you know it's um we call it you know the postcode gangs and and there's no reasoning you know one person will live one street down and this is it's we're going back to i don't know what we're going back to you know it's it's, it's almost 
it's West Side Story without a love story in it. You know, they're, they're, they're just beating each other up. And there seems to be a badge of honour. The killers are getting younger. It's almost a badge of honour to to stab somebody. You know, they're stabbing someone in the buttocks. Well, I've been to a few where they've died because they've bled to death. Ephemeral you know, artery. You know, it's just beyond belief that that this is still happening in this day and age. But as I say... Um, the mayor of London, um, I'm sure he's a really nice person, but he's diluted the police and he's politicized the police and hasn't allowed the police to get on with their job. And their job is to protect life and property and life is everybody's life. And they, and by carrying out legitimate stops, stop and searches in key areas, that would protect somebody's life. That would undoubtedly save somebody. But the police are damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they don't stop somebody and someone gets killed, it's like, well, there were cops sitting there and they did nothing about it. If they do do it, then they're branded everything else. So it's a very, very difficult situation. Yeah. Well, I think that what we need to do is when there is a, a gross, you know, error of, of judgment and, and it resolves, you know, results in someone losing their life in police custody or as a response of a, you know, a, um, serving in a warrant or whatever it was, like some of the deaths that we've had here, then absolutely you highlight that and you say, yeah, this was, this was wrong. And it wasn't just that individual, it was the training and it was the staffing and it was all these other things that we, we bring in. Yeah, and absolutely. you hold that up as that particular case, but you don't allow the conversation to be well. Then all police are racist, all firefighters are, you know, whatever. You know, you, you it's the moment you tar with the same brush. You, you've not only weakened the entire profession, but you've kind of actually detracted from these these few events that they do need the attention because they were wrong in that case. Yeah, absolutely. But what we've done is we've became a, we've become society of apologists. Okay, we can't keep saying sorry for things that are out of our control, whether that be 20 years ago or 200 years ago. We cannot keep saying sorry. We need to understand that, yes, mistakes were made, um, things didn't go right, but we, we were uneducated then by comparison. We've educated ourselves and we should move on from it, but we keep saying sorry, and that's not right either. So it's, it's all a bit bizarre at the moment. Absolutely. Well, I would love to walk you through your transition out and then obviously all the things that you're doing now. So, um, you know, what made you pull the trigger on finally leaving law enforcement? And then I think another important thing, that transition can be a struggle for a lot of people. You know, you've done, you've been a part of the, the positive tribe. You've had a purpose. You know, you, you identify sometimes as that, that badge that you wore. So, so what made you pull the trigger and what was your experience transitioning out? So um, I became a little bit disaffected at the end, but that, that was more of a political thing with my, with my managers at the time. Um, and uh, was I treated unjustly? Yes, I think I was. And in fact, I definitely was. And um, I became bitter, if I'm honest with you. But here, you serve for 30 years. Um, 30 years is enough. You're browbeaten. I mean, the last five years of my police service went really slowly. The last five years since I retired have just flown by, you know, because you're you're up against it. And I'd get the, the call, hi Paul, it's the chief constable here, and the chief constable is like the god. 
there's chief constable here. You've had more burglaries in Loughton than you've had anywhere else. And don't tell me you haven't got enough staff. Um, well, what do you want me to say? Because I haven't got enough staff. That was the, the cuts to the quick. So I'd become a little bit disillusioned around it all. Um, but that said, I always maintain my passion for policing and helping people. I exited after 30 years, you get your maximum pension, um, commutation, lump sum, whatever you want to call it. And I exited on the 29th of December 2016 after 30 years to the day. And um, I was a bit lost, actually, if I'm perfectly honest with you. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, I did some, I drove people's cars, I went and picked cars up from showrooms, etc., etc. And I, I got a friend whose um, son is a lawyer and I've always considered myself to be a good investigator, um, thorough, you know, detailed, etc., etc. And he, a part of his business was to do intellectual, intellectual property reviews. So it could be, I don't know, let's, let's pick up without going into the products that they deal with, but it could be Apple, right? And someone contacts them and says, I want to register a brand called Apple, whatever, Apple iPhone. I would research all the Apple iPhones, and it wasn't for Apple, by the way, but um, I'd research all the Apple iPhones, who's using that brand, blah, blah, blah. And then I would put a corporate paper, strategic paper together, and they'd make a decision whether or not they're going to run with that brand or not. And if they ran with it, what were the cost implications? Did we need to buy um, websites or, or, or businesses or whatever it is? You know, and we'd report back to the client. And that was really good. Um, but, but prior to leaving the police service, I had it in my mind that I wanted to run a recruitment company for former police and military. And the rationale behind that is that there are lots of willing people and we have in this country of the Armed Forces Covenant, but there's nothing to support the police. Once you've done your 30 years, you're pat on the head, pushed out the door, thanks very much, and that's it. It's, it's game over for you. You are on your own. You've got to find your own feet. So um, I registered the website's XJob and XJob Services. Now, XJob is a full-on recruitment company, and we do everything from and social behaviour support for local authorities right through to we've got people out in the Middle East training special forces out there at the moment. And it's everything in between. So we do that side. And then we've got ex-job services. So anybody that's been involved in public sector, law enforcement, uh, fire service, whatever it may be, they advertise their businesses with us. Um, it's like £10, whatever that is, $13 a month. And we are a central repository for nice people because actually there are bad apples everywhere, but we find out if somebody's got a bit of history to them and if they have, then we won't put them on our service site. But if people come to us and they can advertise anything. So we've got pizza makers, um, we've got chimney sweeps, we've got full security teams, we've got dog walkers, we've got dog handlers, you name it. We've got all those because there isn't a central point for those types of trades. So we are slowly but surely building up a portfolio of decent people that pay a few pounds a month to stay with us and be part of our team. And it, and it works. It's a system that works. It's slowly but surely growing. And I think majority of people get work out of it. So, and that's what, what, what we did. But I'm very passionate about helping. 
So I'll, you know, I'll go to retirement events, uh, police federation, whatever that may be, just to give them support and guidance. It could be around CVs. It could be about registering their businesses. Um, I, I trademarked X job. So if you're in the job in this country, you're in the police service or, or the military, and when you retire, you're X job. Well, I, I trademarked that. That's mine. Somebody wants to buy it off me, they're more than welcome. But, you know, that's that's what we do. That's our brand. And that's and so everything we do, it's got the, the X job logo attached to it. So during the COVID pandemic, I set up a, um, a volunteer group. It's called X job Community Volunteers. Um, and I corralled 7,000 worthy people, all with a police, military, or public sector background. And they all got stuck in during the, uh, the pandemic. In fact, I've still got one guy walking a lady's dog up in Cambridgeshire. So, you know, but that's what you do. If you've got that public sector in your heart, you never lose that. You just have to become a bit more entrepreneurial and diversify in order to earn money to, to come to bring it in, you know, bring it bring home the bacon. Now, what would you tell a firefighter or a police officer it with you know, expanding on that entrepreneurial element because what I found certainly here is a firefighter will walk out the back of a you know fire station the last day, or a police officer will you know close yep. their patrol their car the last day, and then the the fireman go well okay I guess I need to go teach at a fire academy now. Well, the police officer will go well I guess I'll go take a security job. And yet for me, the skill set that you have when someone pushes three numbers on a phone and you have to mitigate their worst disaster far exceeds whether, you know, it's putting out a fire or putting handcuffs on someone. It goes well beyond that. You see, if I said to somebody, what do you do? In fact, I had this conversation earlier on with a senior manager from a police force nearby, and she said, well, I can't, I'm a police officer. I said, yeah, but what do you do? And she couldn't break it down. But if I break down what we do, what you do, what I do, we're decision makers, we make life or death decisions. Now, it could be in, in, in your country pulling your gun. It could be as a, as a paramedic and a, a firefighter, do you know what? I'm going to have to put up with the fact that mate's got a gun over there because I've got to save that person's life. Because if I don't do that, that person is going to die. It's making those decisions. Now, they're very high level, but the fact is it could be I'm going to close that that footpath because there's a hole, you know, the sidewalk, because there's a hole in it. I'm going to close that. That could be the decision that you make for the day. It could be the decision you make. So you've got all the decision-making skills. The customer focus is second to none. There isn't an organization in the world that gives the same customer focus as law enforcement or a medical team or a firefighter because it's all about the customer. Yes, the police service have let people down. But look at the size of the police service and compare it to any other organization of that size. There will always be people let down. But the fact is they've got such good customer focus. So you've got that. There are IT skills. The fact that they can actually send an email. There are lots of people that can't do that. They can't do a spreadsheet. So all of a sudden you become a complete package. You do not have to go back to type unless you want to because it's always there's always that comfort in your mother's blanket you know that, that that you're safe there and i get that as well but the fact is that if you it's wants and needs if you've got the ability to communicate and that's listen as well as talk 
and you've got the ability to negotiate, which everybody has. The only thing that police officers and military and firefighters, they struggle with the pricing process. They don't know what their true value is because for the years that they've been in their service, they haven't had to worry about that. They haven't had to worry about a budget. And all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't know what to charge. Well, don't be too cheap and don't be too expensive and don't sell yourself down the line. Keep it real. What do you need? What do you want? But your pension shouldn't supplement your job. You're not there to be cheap and live off of your pension. You're there to make money and make your life better. Um, if I've got any other advice, keep it real with your borrowing. Just because you've set your business up doesn't mean you need to go and buy yourself a new Mercedes. The amount of people that I see that all of a sudden they go from driving their, I don't know, their little car around, their little Honda around to having a great big four before because that's what they can do. Um, they will fall flat on their ass because it, it, it takes the flick of a switch. You know, when the, the chancellor here puts the interest rate up, you've got to pay for that shit. And that's, that makes it more difficult. So just keep it real. Don't overextend your finances. And if you are on a pension, you, you can really diversify. I, I do TV stuff as well. You know, I've, I've done TV stuff. Um, I've done radio stuff and it's not all about earning money. It's about, Doing what you like to do. Do what you like to do. If you, you know, if you think that, you know, I, talk, I was talking to somebody the other day. Oh, there's one lady I spoke to. She left the police service, went into television production. She now runs a casting agency because that's what she wanted to do. The world is your oyster. When you leave your organizations, the world is your oyster. You can do anything you want to do within your skill set. It's about you upcycling your skills, understanding and preparing for the exit day. If you want to be a trainer, absolutely fine. But go and train in a corporate situation where you'll earn five, $600 a day. Don't go back to working for an organization that can't afford to pay you five or $600 a week. And that's the difference. Work smart, not hard. Love it. Absolutely love it. Because I mean, I agree completely. I, I I actually cashed out my pension, so I have no pension. So there's none to live off. But it was to, to make the leap of faith to do this full time because the force multiplier element of this reaching thousands of people versus running on one call at a time. Um, you know, that was the crossroads and the decision that, that I made. And it was terrifying. But people, you know, the, the comments that I get is, wow, you were so brave. And, you know, and it's not. It's just taking a step back and first he's saying you've done enough i never ever wanted to leave the fire service i was kind of forced out by the universe and the situation i was put in um right. but uh you know it's it's the same mission i'm still trying to make the world better i'm still trying to help my brothers and sisters in in the first responder professions and the military professions but um why not I'm writing a second book now why not if someone else can write a book that's turned into a film or an amazon series why the hell can't I? I mean, that's the problem is that we are so damn humble that we almost become meek. And that's the difference is you, humility is a superpower, but you've also yeah. got to not listen to that imposter syndrome. You've got to have that self-confidence as well. And the lack of autonomy when you work for a department can actually be kind of debilitating. And once you do kind of venture out on your own and you take a couple of breaths, you're like, Oh my God, I can, I can do anything. It may be scary and it may feel, you know, fall, fall flat on my face, but 
you know, again, if, if I could if I could be in a fire station and respond to this building fire or cut this person out of a car or go to this hurricane, then I can sure as shit write a book or start a casting agency. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the only limitation is your own ambition. If if you're happy just to do the basic things and just get on with but yeah, look, I'm am I privileged? That's a word I don't like to use, but yeah, of course I'm privileged. I'm I'm fifty seven, I've got a pension, I've got a nice life, you know, everything's the stars are lined up for me and I get it that not everybody's in that position. Um but it's risk versus reward and there's always someone to catch you when you fall if you work hard enough. They won't catch you if you've borrowed so much money you can't afford to repay it back. But if, if you've worked hard enough, you will make enough contacts. If, if what you start off doing doesn't work for you, if you do it properly, you would have made enough contacts, you'd have impressed enough people to say, yeah, I'll take you on, come work for me. And it's about that assurance. It's about the, the, the ability to communicate, listen, and talk. Absolutely. Well, you touched on the fact that you worked in TV. I just want to get to that before we go to the 7X and the Human Performance Project. So how did you find yourself getting in that world? And talk to me about the, the show that's coming to America very soon. So um, the I, I got into that world. Um, it's, it's a strange one, really. I'd always been a a show off. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but I sing in a band. Um, and I've never, when I was in the, in the police service, I was always the one, if someone said, Oh, can, can someone do a press conference? I'd always do it because I wasn't, you know, I'd get up and I'd do the radio show. We, we had a local BBC local radio show every Tuesday. They'd have a, a crime thing and what the crime trends say could be, uh, frauds or whatever it may be. And I'd always do that. Anyway, when I set up X job, um, we, got a deployment around um there's a society called the 45a society and it's a fantastic charity and it's about holocaust survivors now of course there aren't many holocaust survivors now but it's about their families and, and what have you and last year the 45a society went back to the home where the the old men now but when they were children when they were um, taken out of the death camps, they came to the UK and they went to live in this particular home in the UK. And we were tasked with supplying people, not security, far from it, but it was helpers. You know, we, we put a, a medic in there because we knew there were lots of old people. We had people pushing wheelchairs and, and we met the most amazing, oh, honestly, it was humbling. These old men and ladies who had been in the death camps and they were absolutely Phenomenal people, strong, everything about them. And there's a lovely um, guy called Robert Rinder, and he is our Judge Judy in, in this country. He's, he's, he's Judge Judy, and he, he, he had a program called Judge Rinder. And he was there, and his mum is the chairperson of this, this charity. And I was just chatting to him and, and what have you. And we got on well, and he, he saw the badge, saw the ex-job thing, who's, who's in the police, and that's how that came about. And he's, he really, he loves the police, loves law enforcement. And um, I was just chatting to him. And I'm a volunteer at the Tower of London, most iconic place in London. Uh, most Tuesday nights you'll find me there. Um, in fact, I'm on my way up there this evening. I know it's a Wednesday. but um, And I said to him, look, if you have a fancy coming up there, it's, you know, it's an icebreaker, I suppose. But if you fancy coming up there, come up there. He said, 
do you know what? I'd love to do that. Now, this is a guy that um, millions of people watch him on the television. He's, he, he does every, everything, everything he possibly can. And um, he, he went up there and he said, um, you know, is there anything that I can do? And I said, yeah, could you listen to one of my podcasts? Because I'd, I'd done a, a podcast with Unilad and something like 2 million people have listened to it across all the platforms. And he watched it and he phoned me four days later and said, look, I'm doing a TV program. It's called Rob Rinder's Interrogation Secrets. Um, and I'd like you to take part in it. And I, and I did, well, I think, three. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I did three. Anyway, I've done, I've done seven out of the ten episodes now. And they're, they're going, I think it's CBS Reality or one of the, the platforms in, in the US is going to go there. I can't name the person that's going to be chairing it yet because they, they haven't announced it. But um, it's not Robert Rinder. It's somebody that is a household name there. And yeah, I'm quite buoyed by it. You know, it's it's a really it's a lovely thing to do. And basically, it's about commentating on the interview techniques of the officers. And all my cases are in the states, and, and most of them are Florida based, actually. So it's it, it's quite an interesting um, concept. And it's on Crime Investigation Channel here, going on CBS Reality there, I believe. And plus anybody else, it'll be on some free channel at some point. I'll be on there four times a week and nobody will know who I am. But but it is it is interesting and, and I'm doing some other stuff as well with Sky. So yeah, it's good. It's good fun. Beautiful. Yeah. And I know obviously who the host is going to be and it's, it's, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thank dynamic. You. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I got told off because I actually put their face on, on LinkedIn and um, their agent phoned me up and said, uh, we haven't announced their involvement in this case. <laughs> I'm like, oh Oops. shit! So, so yeah, I, I did that, and um, yeah. So, look, like I say, life's good. Um, I've got very few things to complain about. My stress levels over my golf most of the time, and that's um, that goes through the roof. But other than that, not a lot to to get animated about. Well, we were connected through the Human Performance Project and Seven X, this around the world thing that we're doing. So, just give me a kind of an insight into your perspective of this whole thing from, from, you know, the, the green braids that you met to, to your kind of overall perception of it. Well, it, it, it's, it's phenomenal to be fair. I was very lucky because, um, I was introduced to, uh, the guys that came, came over, um, by a really dear friend. This, this person had been in the police with my dad in 1970 from 1972. He was a, a cadet. And he was my dad's aide. My dad was a detective and this, this guy worked with him. And, and his name's Gary. He, he runs a fantastic... Now, he's another one, detective sergeant on special parts. He runs a company called um, Diplomatic Guide Services. And he he's toured with everybody, you know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Madonna, uh, Johnny Depp, the whole lot. He's taken them all around, you know. He, he's, he's the real deal. Um, got, got family in Texas. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant he is. But he, he came to me and said, look, Paul, this is too big for me. I can't, I can't facilitate this. And I haven't got the contacts that I think we need. Would you meet these guys? So I, I went to meet them. And they said, look, we, we, we want to do this project. And can I explain what they told me? Am no, please, that's to- what I'm saying. I'm always fascinated to hear everyone's kind of perception so, and their piece of the puzzle. So what they said to me was, we want to bring a, a team of people around the world, seven continents in seven days, in a 787, I believe it is, jet, and 
there are a number of sponsors, there are a number of athletes, and there are a number of professionals that will be monitoring the stresses and strains placed on the athletes' bodies. Do you think you can help? So I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can help. So we went through it all. And, and from my perspective, if we can land this in London, it will be groundbreaking. It not only will it be groundbreaking, um, it will make history here and across the globe. And it is a phenomenal charity and an overall event. I mean, to the logistics wrapped around all of this is absolutely huge. But to get a team of athletes to skydive into or base jump into a location, that's that's mind-boggling. You know, that's not something that I would ever expect. And it's something that, you know, we've got to work on. If we if we can get it home, absolutely brilliant. We'll get it home, but depends on what in what way. Then to undertake a marathon um, through central London, through the parks, the Royal Parks, I mean, it is absolutely stunning, uh, the location. And they'll be going past some of the most iconic sites in the world not just in the UK, but in the world, you know, but people will look at Big Ben and they'll recognize it straight away. The Houses of Parliament, Buckingham Palace, all these different places that they will be recognized. Now the athletes might, might not recognize them at the end of it the, because they're going to be exhausted at the end of their run. And then to undertake a swim um, in a very iconic location. It's just, it's absolutely fantastic. And then move on to their next challenge, which it's each sleep repeat because they're replicating it, but under different conditions. So the endurance element is a huge piece because nobody knows what stresses and strains this is going to place on the athlete's bodies. They can guess, but they don't actually know because with seven continents, you are covering everything from extreme heat to extreme cold and the bits in between. So it's, it's a, it's a very, very, it's a fantastic project and it, it hopefully, you know, if they, if they keep me involved in it, it's something I'm really looking forward to. Well, I know when after we talked, um, they, they they had several locations, and I've been talking to Ryan as well. To me, the idea that if we can jump in whatever that looks like into the Royal Chelsea Hospital, which is taking care of the British veterans, and then, as you said, run around the Royal Parks, which you know will obviously encompass not only the Kensington Palace, Buckingham Palace, but also Princess Diana's Memorial and a lot of our very powerful you know, war memorials in that area. And then swim in the Serpentine, which is the most iconic swimming venue in central London. Yeah, um, that is amazing. And what I'm you know so excited about with the two kind of trips that I'm making within about six weeks of each other is we've got Reorg, the Royal Marines, you know, charity. We've got the the firefighters charity. Um, you know, we've got um, the Royal British Legion, and then you bring in the lifeboats, the Samaritans, and and I want and I'm hoping that. All the eyes will be on this from from a British perspective. We're going to come in and and land in the UK, and it's going to send a message to the world that because obviously mental health is at the core of what initiated this particular um, endeavor is that mental health isn't just a military problem or a no, first no. responder problem, and it's not an American problem or a British problem. This is a global human crisis that we're dealing with, and if. Delta operators and Navy SEALs and Green Berets and firefighters and police officers can come together and say, 
we experience this, these kind of pseudo alpha professions, I'm hoping that will resonate with the entire planet. And rather than doing 22 push-ups or 5Ks, that this incredible event and obviously the manual that will be made from this, which will literally be a tool on how to create more resilience in the human body, it's it's going to send such a powerful message and it's going to highlight all the men and women that have held the front line, not just for the last two years, but for centuries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are, and I can put you in touch with, there are a number of um, police charities in this, in this country as well. One is called Care of Police Survivors and some of those um, people have lost their lives through self-harm. You know, the, the suicide is, uh, I, I remember, you know, my colleagues, colleagues that have taken their own lives, and the impact that it, that's had on us as a as a family, you know, the, as the police family, that that was overwhelming. So, no, it's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant idea, and I'm sure that I'm sh- I'm sure it's going to happen. You know, that that's that's the bottom line. It's going to happen. We we we've just got to get it into the right time frames, and and it's all going to take place. Absolutely. Well, middle of February is supposed to be kickoff time. So hopefully we'll be in the UK like the third week of, of February from what I understand. Well, Brilliant. I want to be very mindful of your time, but I have a few closing questions if you have time for those before I yeah. let you go. Ariel. Beautiful. All right. Well, the first one I love to ask, is there a, a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can pertain to our discussion today or be completely unrelated. I am not a reader. I'm a listener. So I listen to podcasts and I listen to books. Um, the books that I listen to, I'm into autobiographies, but it's mainly about entertainment. I'm really sad when it comes to that. So I like, I like comedians. Um, James Corden, his, um, his book that he narrated is particularly funny because I could, I could actually relate to some of the things that he, he's done. Um, Bill Bryson, I absolutely love Bill Bryson's work. I think that, you know, the stuff that he does around travel, and I've just finished uh, a book called Down Under. Um, But I'm a terrible reader. I haven't got the patience for it, so I'm quite happy if I'm on a long haul or or I'll sit down here and listen to it, but I will listen to a book, and that is me. Brilliant. Well, what about films and or documentaries? What are some of the ones that you love? Films. So my go-to film, UK go-to for go-to film is uh, Quadrophenia. Okay, now Quadrophenia, filmed in 1979, Sting from the police was in it. It's all about the mods and the rockers, which is totally alien to the Americans. They won't understand understand that, but that's my go-to film. Um, my film of all time, I suppose, it has to be The Godfather. I absolutely love The Godfather to a point where it was the first film that I ever recorded on a Betamax video recorder, okay, from the television. And I watched it till it went thin, until it was, you know, until it could play no more. So that is, uh, that's a huge one. But I also like Harry Potter. I like all the <laughs> Harry Potter films. And it, it's just, it's a sad, it's sad this week, um, Robbie Coltrane passing, um, Hagrid. You know, it's another part, but yeah, I'm, I'm a, I do like my films, but I'm a bit of a creature of habit. I always creep back to the old ones. Yeah, Quadrophenia wasn't that a Who project as well? Yeah, that was a Who project. They they actually wrote it as a as a, a rock opera. Um, a man by the name of um, 
Bill Kirbishley was their manager and he he got it generated into a film and it's it's a, it's a great film. The soundtrack is phenomenal. Um, but yeah, it's about growing up in 1964, 65 in uh, West London. And yeah, it's, it's a really, you know, it's a, for me, it's, um, it's one of those go-to films. Beautiful. And the sound. Yeah. So next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I've got a number of people that I can point in your direction. Um, the list is quite extensive, so I think it's probably better that I send you some of those people. Um, funny enough, I did a, a, as you know, I'm, I've just gone into this, just started it, and I just went through my first list of friends and 50 people straight away, you know, in my, and you said to me, once you get half a dozen under your belt, you know, the rest all falls into place. But I've just gone, boom, I've got 50 people. So I'm going to have to do some serious work to catch up with the numbers that you've done. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I've got, I've got a number of people that I can put you in touch with and I will gladly do that. Beautiful. Well, that being said, so tell people about your new podcast. So my new podcast is called X Job Downloaded. Um, X Job in this country is the police, former police officers, and downloaded is what is what it is. We want to download people. We want to get that information from them. And it's that, granddad, what did you do in the war situation? We want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to put their version of events and the great things that they did into history, and it will stay here forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful. Where can they find that? Well, I'm going to be launching it on a, um, I think it's a, a cast. I can't remember the name of the platform, but it's going to go onto a platform. And then once that's done, I'll get those details over to you. Brilliant. All right. Well, before we get to where people can find you online, what do you do to decompress? Um, I sing in a band. Um, I'm a granddad. Uh, my grandson's called Elijah. He lives in Australia. My granddaughter's Elsie, and they're both under two. Um, I play golf. I'm massive into my photography. Um, I do my GoPro blogging and all that sort of stuff so that's that's my stuff i used to cycle a lot um and i should do that just for my mental and physical well-being as much as anything else but i work and that's 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 what i you know that rightfully or wrongfully that's what i do and i i can't ever imagine not doing this sort of thing and i, I find this relaxing um yeah that's what that's what i do I go on holiday as well. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I've got some, I do have some me time as well, but I, I'm, I'm happy when I'm on my own sometimes and just listening to my own stuff. And music is a massive part of my life. You know, I've got playlist after playlist. If I'm doing something, I'll set a, set a playlist to set my mood. When I, I went to New York earlier on in the year and I've got a New York 22 playlist and all my songs are relative to, to New York, you know, and there's, there's hundreds, you know, so that's what I do. It's quite geeky, quite sad. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'm sure people are fascinated. I'm sure there's some people in the UK that are even, you know, would love to join your organization. So where are the best places online to find you, whether it's websites and or social media? So my social media, everything is branded XJob. It's EX hyphen job. Um, and that's everything, everything that you see. It'll be a blue badge um, and 
that's what that's what we do. My ex job services, that's ex hyphen job services all one word dot com. Sorry, dot co dot uk, and then my ex job dot com. No, I've got it the wrong way around. Can we edit this? So, so it's xjobservices.com and xjob.co.uk. They're the two recruitment agencies. And then I've got Instagram. You can find me, Paul Maleri, and that's uh, Paul, normal spelling, Maleri, M-A-L-E-A-R-Y. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, you name it, I'm there. And I'll go to the opening of an envelope. Beautiful. Well, Paul, I just want to say thank you. We've been chatting well over two hours now. Um, we had a great conversation in Starbucks in London not too long ago, but uh, it's it's been an amazing perspective, you know, and, and and some of the areas we've gone to, whether it's the environment or you know gun ownership. I mean, it's it's so important to hear everyone's different lens because growing up in Essex is very different than growing up in Louisiana, as you said. So, nice. uh, so I appreciate you being so generous with your time today. My absolute pleasure, mate, and thank you very much. And I wish you guys every success with the projects and everything that uh, that you do. And I look forward to talking to you all again soon. Thank you.